Welcome to the Happy Sales Podcast with me, your host, Sam Dennis. We inspire salespeople in Asia to perform better, smash quotas, but most importantly, be happy. If you're wrestling with gatekeepers, need a boost to crush those sales targets, or just want to learn from the best in the business, we'll meet some amazing people that have overcome obstacles, embraced growth, and led successful businesses in Asia. Welcome to the Happy Sales Podcast, and we're here with Christina. Christina, you've had such an amazing career spanning so many different countries, San Francisco, Paris, now Singapore. Tell us about your journey, how you started. Oh, thanks so much. So first off, delighted to be here. Um, really happy to be speaking with you and furthering the happiness and sales mission. Where I come from, it was a twisty, turny path. My parents were some of the early people in the tech scene in the 1970s. My mother did technical sales and support on deck and IBM mainframes, and my father was with ERP company JD Edwards. In fact, they met in a server room on a client site, and it was love at first sight. So they actually ended up following a pretty entrepreneurial path, which took them to New Zealand, where my sister and I grew up. And our dinner conversations revolved around things like revenue recognition, hardware versus software payment terms, and most critically, the importance of having a good team and community of supporters. So, so this is where my entrepreneurial path took, uh, took hold. And there were great times, but there were also really stressful times. The recession in New Zealand in the late 80s was particularly hard. And so my family actually had to take out loans from their family and friends to make it through. So I'll never forget one particular moment when my parents thought they'd lost absolutely everything they owned and more besides, and were going to have to borrow money from their parents to buy a flight ticket back to the US so they could go and live in their parents' guest room. So growing up, I was always concerned about a few things. One was I loved tech, but I also wanted to have a financial cushion. So I started working when I was 15 and kept going throughout, even washing dishes and serving mashed potatoes to the sons and daughters of senators while I was a student at Yale. And when I graduated from Yale, there were three big choices. Basically funneled all students through one of three paths. You could become an investment banker, a management consultant, or you could work as a teacher with Teach for America. Now, I knew I wanted to travel and see the world because that was how I had grown up. And so there was really one obvious choice, and that was management consulting with Oliver Wyman, as they were a firm that was known for letting their first year people travel. So I packed up a U-Haul, moved to San Francisco to work for Oliver Wyman. But then I actually spent the next few years working for customers across the U.S., Mexico, Canada, El Salvador, and even the Galapagos Islands. That's super interesting. I have a question over there. Christina, you, you went to Angel. So were you an exceptionally good student? Were you like one of those like really good with your exams? Or <laughs> I was always a oldest daughter, A-type people pleaser achiever. Yes. So, so I worked very hard. My friends made fun of me because every time they came to my house, I had big poster boards with you know, key dates from the American Revolution or, you know, the... The, the, the treaties of human rights wow. on my so, walls. So, so you, you you were studious by nature, and then, and what shaped you? Because I can see when you started, it was you interned in a private equity and then went to consulting. Was there any was there any guiding force or advice that said you know you should go into consulting? Was that you know what 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 made you join? Pick that. It was really the path that was proposed to Vincent at Yale from the career center. So it was either investment banking, consulting, where you could make good money. Or you could take a 
path where money was less guaranteed. And given my upbringing, I really wanted to make sure I had a mm -hmm. good and guaranteed salary. And since I'd done some time in private equity, the guys at the PE shop had explained a bit of the stuff that I should expect as an investment banker. In turn, I wasn't allowed to get lunch away from my desk. I had to have lunch at the desk. I wasn't allowed to use a mouse at first. And there was a list of items I was not allowed to order in for lunch because they were considered too smelly. So I realized it was not an environment where I wanted to spend the next three years of my life chained to a desk um, in New York City. The idea of moving to San Francisco and seeing the world was much Fantastic. more attractive. And, and then I can see from there you, you moved on to Paris. Tell us about how you took that decision. I, I got this opportunity. This really cool Franco-Australian fintech who is helping the world's large, underserved, underbanked population. So while working in Latin America, especially in the Galapagos, I had seen firsthand the issues that remote fishermen without bank accounts faced. They, they wouldn't always get paid for their catch until well after they had delivered it. And then it would sometimes take months for them to remit this money back to their wives and children on the mainland. So asking the poorest members of society to take on the financial risk as they were too poor to be served by banks seemed like an enormous injustice. So when I got offered this role with a bank that, uh, with a FinTech that was helping to resolve this justice, and they said I got to live in Paris and I got seven weeks paid vacation, I was sold. I packed my bags, I, I, I told my boyfriend I was moving, I told my flatmate I was moving, I told my parents and basically got on the next plane that I could. And I ended up spending the next nine Do you have any, uh, any fear there? Oh my gosh, this might not work out. Or were you just too enamored by this vision of being in Paris? Obviously, you know, you're always afraid about these things. But what I've done since I was a kid was I always had enough money in my bank for two things. One was if everything hit the fan, I had enough money in the bank to go and live for six months in Thailand while I figured it out. And the second thing was I always made sure I had enough money in my bank to pay for the hospital okay. fees of breaking a leg in Smart. whatever country I was in. And I figured so long as I had the chance, then why Thailand? Why not? Why not back to, <laughs> why not back home? I had done some backpacking in Thailand when I was young and I had met quite a few people where through the starry eyes of a 19 year old, 20 year old, you see that they didn't like their life, they moved to these islands in the middle of nowhere in Thailand and become, became dive instructors. And you realize that no matter what rock bottom you hit, there is always a way to bounce back. So I, you know, when you're 20, you don't necessarily have enough money for living expenses with no job in San Francisco for six months, but six months it in is. Thailand is very achievable. Super cool. And tell us about your journey then in Paris. Yeah, so I spent the next nine years mostly working with this group of investors that would invest in generally family-owned, family-run uh, or founder-run software companies. And they would help to turn them around, modernize them, bring them into the SaaS era and, and find new sets of customers. So I spent nine years doing a bit of everything really. So it was investor relations, mergers and acquisitions, sales, marketing regional management. Uh, we had some great exits. We had exits to Oracle. We had it to MasterCard. We had an exit to Accurrent and to Fortive, among others. And it was, it was really fun, actually, as sort of a 24-year-old, 25-year-old to be able to sit at the table with MasterCard, negotiating with these people over joint venture terms. And it's not something that I ever thought I'd be able to achieve or to have a seat at the table for at that age so it was, it was a really uh, good and experience and a lot when of when you were in the those positions where you might see people with way more experience what gave you the sense that yes i belong here i can do this like was there was there that sense of confidence so 
Einstein always says that if you take a sphere, the volume of the sphere is what you know, and the surface of the sphere is what you recognize you don't know. So when I was very young and doing this, my sphere was tiny. So I had no idea how big of an idiot I probably looked like because I just I didn't have the base of knowledge. Add to that one, when you're a management consultant, they, they bill you out at very high day rates when you're very inexperienced. In exchange, you just work, 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 work. And so you had to come in with that confidence that you were good enough to justify that day rate. Otherwise, you just couldn't survive. And you had to come in knowing that whatever deficiencies you had, you would just work hard to overcome them. Now that I'm a little bit older and I realize you know, so many areas of expertise that I don't have that I didn't even realize that I didn't have back then. Uh, well, probably should have well, been a lot more nervous if, than if I was. If you were meeting <laughs> younger Christina, then would you, what, would, what advice would you give her? Spend time with older people who are experienced, but who will also call you out okay. on your BS. <laughs> okay. I think... Honestly, everybody in their 20s Absolutely. could use that advice, right? Absolutely. Just a good reality check, just to know exactly where you are. M moving on from the embarrassment, how, how did you land at home in Singapore? What was your journey then? Great question. So my parents were in Colorado, which is where Ping Identity is headquartered. And what happened is my, my husband is French, and we had always wanted to look at moving somewhere where I could speak English on a day-to-day -day basis because I'd been hitting a bit of a professional ceiling for what I could do in Paris. So we had a very young child and I was I was on a plane or on a train, you know, every week or every second week so that I could put my skills to use. You know, my, my best skills were not terribly viable for the French market, if we're being honest. So we were looking at where we could go and what we could do. And the options that he was able to do since he's in oil and gas is Aberdeen, mm -hmm. Glasgow, Singapore and wasn't, Perth. Wasn't a very so obviously hard the one word. where they speak the best English is Singapore. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so the company I was I was with, we had our exit. So we had our liquidity event and you know, I had a, a nice little chunk of savings mm -hmm. that came out of that. So I came to Singapore, took six months off, which is amazing. Um I, I hadn't even taken maternity leave. I was back to travel wow. five weeks after giving birth. I was giving demos while in labor. So the idea of taking six months off was incredible. And, you know, I discovered hobbies. I'd never even a hobby since I'd graduated from university. And we had so much fun in Singapore, went to the Hong Kong Sevens, traveled all around ASEAN and started working first as a consultant with Ping Identity and then ProxyClick, a Belgian startup to help them to launch APAC, then to help them to launch their enterprise sales Fantastic. team. And, and did Ping Identity come as part of, like, uh, did that opportunity come about working with ProxyClick? No, so I actually, the, the people that I had worked with in France were ex-colleagues of some of the Ping Identity team. So as with all things in this world, it's just part of your network. So, you know, they, they found out that I was available and they said, yeah, let's let's go and do a bit of work. And then came back to Ping quite recently, just in the past couple of months, because with ProxyClick, we had had our liquidity event and Ping was looking to seriously invest in the ASEAN market, really launch it here. And they said, hey, Christina, you know, you, we, we, we know you, we like you, we trust you. Would you like to give this a go? And I said, absolutely. I love startups, but I also love starting up regions on behalf of larger companies. 
because I get all the fun of entrepreneurialism without actually having to mortgage that's, my house. It's always a good thing. Uh, and the <laughs> other interesting thing is how you meandered then into into sales because you know with that consulting background you could have done pretty much anything. What made you feel like sales was something that I wanted to? So when I was a consultant, I loved being on the client site. When I was in investor relations and mergers and acquisition, I loved the negotiations, working with the investors, working with the acquirers, working with the stakeholders, being on their site, presenting and getting through the legals and everything. And then when I was in marketing, I realized that I just had to sit there and say no and build a lot of internal presentations. And I was really pretty depressed, actually, while I was working in marketing as a result. And what that taught me is that for me and for my personality, I need a role that is out in the field that's facing externally and that allows me to engage with a variety of new stakeholders and new problem sets and new worldviews on a day-to-day basis. Interesting. Since you've, you've covered so many different markets, you've worked in the US, you've worked in Europe, and now you've worked in Asia. When you're dealing with clients and customers, is there anything you find unique in this market or different? Oh, absolutely. So many things. So when you're working in some other regions, I'll say Europe, for example, they don't always have the same recognition that they may be a secondary or tertiary market. Here, I think ASEAN, you know, some of your largest economies here do have the same size GDP as, you know, the state of Minnesota or the state of Colorado in the US. So there is that recognition here. However, there is a large number of users. So the big adjustment comes in the ARPU shift. So the change in average revenue per user and starting to look at your price purchasing parity and and what that indexes on a global basis. So per user pricing metrics, which a lot of people are moving towards, are very difficult to justify in this market. And so working through that with global and explaining that you'll have the same overall revenue, you'll have the same or more or less overall cost base and database size, but how you price it is going to end up being different is oftentimes a big adjustment for American and European firms. I think a lot of companies don't have the benchmark. So how do you educate them? Like anything you do differently to drive the Asian agenda or sell the story? Oh, lots of things. The number one thing that I try to do is really show that price purchasing parity benchmark. And now that can go one of two ways, right? So some orgs will get it and they'll say, oh, okay, you know, this is this is profitable under these scenarios. Some orgs won't get it and they'll say, oh, you know what? This is a low ARPU market. I just don't even want to touch this market. So it's, it's a conversation that is very nuanced and tricky to have. Because um, if you if you go in with a saying, okay, you know, we need to change our price list for this com- country, which has the same GDP as Minnesota. A lot of your American CFOs are going to say, or we could just not. So so that is why actually having the distance of resellers and distributors can often be a really powerful thing for this region for, for, three, le- for three reasons, right? You don't have the same economic power and consistency as you get from the EU or the US. You don't have the same currency as you do. And you have a myriad of withholding taxes and vendor registration laws, which a lot of multinationals really are not used to. 
So by having partners and distributors, you lose a bit of margin, but a lot of that complexity is taken care of Very on true. your behalf. Very true. And talking about complexity in the market, which is nuanced even with customers and how, you know, how selling is, to, is, there, is there any stories that come to mind of, you know, when you were, were selling and trying to close some deals and you faced some challenges that you weren't able to, to see? Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there was one which was so many. Uh, there was a, a Filipino bank which really, really, really required the identity card, full personal identity of each one of our members of the board of directors. And it was such a small deal that it just did not justify taking it through a reseller or anything like that. And it certainly didn't justify that risk. And both parties were just sitting and looking at the other side of the table as if they were extraterrestrials for, on the one hand, saying, how could you possibly yes. not be prepared to provide this? This is standard operating procedure in the market. And the other one saying, how could you possibly ask me to give you everything to steal my ID? So that's, that, that, that's a big one. The, the other one that I come into a lot is legislation. So Bank Negara Malaysia rules on outsourcing clause 12.1 states that the regulator must approve all cloud service providers uh, that are taken on by a bank. But oftentimes the bank will need to actually engage and build with that cloud service provider in order to hit their commercial deadlines long before the regulator will actually approve it. So you end up in this limbo period where people who are Used to doing business in one way, we'll say, oh, it's fine. The, the, the regulator never actually rejects anybody, um, so we can recognize the revenue. And people doing business in another will say, well, that's a contingent liability. We can't recognize a single cent. And especially, you know, for, for, a, for a U.S. or a European firm doing business abroad, subject to a regulator with which they have no familiarity, it's a big challenge. And talking about business growth and expansion and, and doing well, I think talent plays a really important role. And I'd love to hear your comments then on, mm -hmm. you know, talent in the market in Asia. What is a skill that is lacking for talent in sales in, in Asia? I wouldn't say that there are any skills that are lacking. I would just say that like in any other market, good talent is hard to come by. And especially in this multilingual ASEAN region, we often do require mm -hmm. multilingual talent. So to get someone who is technical, reactive, mm -hmm. ambitious, but not too ambitious because they have to be willing to be a salesperson but not want to be the leader, and multilingual, and well-spoken and well-written, far out, that is a big set of asks, right? Especially in such a small population as Singapore, for example, where the best and brightest do often end up going into government, into banking, into consulting, becoming lawyers and doctors. And, and all of a sudden you kind of sit there and you say, oh my goodness, you know, 40% of the population already has outstanding jobs with massive multinationals and government agencies. What am I as a startup going to possibly offer the top talent to come to me, right? If I look for the, the, the misfits, the people with the people with tattoos, the people with a slightly different background, the people who perhaps haven't been given the chance that they should have been given in their career so far. And then I work as hard as I can to develop them and my goal is not for them to win a particular deal or anything like that. My goal is to launch them in a good direction for Fantastic. their career. You're hiring for yourself. What is the number one thing that you look out for in Dallin? The ability to listen. It, so many people think in sales that you have to be a good talker. And that is absolutely incorrect. I, I used to have an alert set on Gong 
So if any member of my team talked for more than 60% of a call, I got an email sent to me because they should be listening. And a demo is not a one-way presentation or anything like that. So that's that's the number one thing that I look for. Um, and and you find that you know good listeners are generally also good collaborators and good good closers. The rest can yes, be taught. Love it, Christina. One of the things I was really interested to know about is as you've as you've developed your corporate career in sales, have you created your own sales philosophy? Absolutely, great question. A lot of companies focus on the sales methodology. So your MedPick, your Miller Hyman, or they'll focus on the product. And what they forget to actually explain to their salespeople is the mechanics of selling. Knowing the mechanics of selling enables your team to sprint through the finish line. So one of the first things I do in any new org is to create a sales kit. It's a usually about a dozen numbered folders in order of the general sales process where I prep the key documents. And once that's in a good spot, I'll transfer that to Notion if we're using a tool like that. And I'm in a position where I can influence that in the organization. And then that means that our salespeople can actually negotiate with transparency because they already know what they are and are not allowed to do in terms of their give gets with the customer. Would you be able to walk us through a little bit about how that looks like? Like a little bit more granularity in terms of maybe a few pointers on how you run that or execute that. Absolutely. So one of the things that I'll often create is an external how to buy deck, Mm -hmm. which will explain the options for the customer in terms of subscription, hosting, user definitions, training, professional services, support levels, and product modules. So once you're able to articulate all of that in one spot, then you can go and you can start to get all the supporting documents, right? So your first bit for for your sales team is going to be outreach. Mm -hmm. So some templated emails that they can build off of for outreach. And I'll usually work with three to five different sales plays that'll touch on the key needs of the buyer. The second part is going to be that inbound. So how do you get more information out of inbound, whether it's a partner, reseller, customer, and how do you approach that? From there, it's the discovery agreement. So this is typically the email that you send to the prospect following the call. And this is typically an email that I get a lot of pushbacks from AEs on having a discovery agreement. And I myself have pushed back on discovery agreements in the past because it feels very informal. Right. Sorry, very formal. Very formal. Yes. Yes. But what you kind of need to remember is that this is a This is a political email that sort of sets out, here's what we discussed, here's what you say you need, here's what we can provide, here are the next steps and what we all agreed that we would do. And and here are the stakeholders who need to be involved and by when. So it's an email that's intended to be forwarded to other people in the organization. And is this this sent before the meeting or is this sent like after the meeting is done that this is what we're agreeing to? Yep. So it's sent after the meeting. So typically if it's a large meeting, I'll try and either myself, if I'm doing the sale or you know one of my reps, get them to do a one-on-one with one of the stakeholders to pre-brief the agenda, to pre-review the slides if possible and what's going to be shown, and then send out a little agenda or even the, the PDF of the slides in advance. And then afterwards, that discovery agreement sort of says, you know, here's what we discussed, so on and so forth. Is this something that you worked on to create or is this something that you've you've built as part of you know your just your sales process working on a certain sales methodology yeah so we did this at proxy click with a great sales enablement lead jen and we we tweaked it a little bit for different cultures right so for the french enterprise buying culture it's very different from the u.s mid-market buying culture 
And we kind of worked on a bit of those templates to, to have some standards for the company. And one of our one of our reps really got into the templates. She had one for billing, one for common licensing questions, and you know, one for how to buy. And she really outperformed everybody because she was able to provide formal, predictable, repeatable responses very rapidly for customers. Fantastic. And that really provides a structure that even reps can be held accountable to or and just, just so that they know exactly where to go. Because we deal with so much uncertainty as we were talking about. Yeah. And having that process in place really helps. Have you seen a tangible increase in then closures and, you know, reducing lead time to, to closing deals? Absolutely. So increased success in sales, increased qual in, qual out rates, because when the customers understand, okay, here's here's how it's going to work. The ones that were never going to be a good fit won't waste your time. And then you're concentrated on the ones that will be a good fit. And, you know, prospect never wastes your time, right? You are the one wasting their time if you are if you are not representing how your organization sells and it won't be a good fit together. So I misspoke a bit there. Um, and then it really helps to reduce the sales cycle period because rather than hunting around for information and so on and so forth, the reps just have it there at the tip of their fingers, whether they've been onboarded for two weeks or two years. Gotcha. And is there anything else you'd like to share on your sales process that maybe I haven't asked? So we used to store all of these templates centrally in HubSpot. And then okay. we had a, a, a plug-in between HubSpot and Exchange. So the apps could get the latest version of those templates straight off of uh, straight out of Outlook. And then we had several sequences as well. So whether it was an inbound sequence, a, you know, the customer has ghosted me sequence, or when we released a few new features or capabilities, you know, a new sequence would be popped out for the reps to use for, for announcing that. And by templating those, it just, it, it's not that the rep has to use those exact words, far from it, but it reduces that barrier for when they walk into the office, no longer are they staring at a blank page, but they walk in and they've got something they can start to edit from. So it just makes it that much easier to start the day. Right. right. And do you have any top sales technology stacks that you use? Like what's your top one? Yeah. I love HubSpot for some of the automations, for the templates, for the sequences, you know, for automatically creating records, which, you know, in in Salesforce oftentimes, yeah, there's a lot of clicking for mm -hmm. manually creating records. So there's a lot to love around HubSpot as an inbound engine. I love, I've stopped using them, but because it just got a little bit too creepy, but I really enjoy using Crystal Nose. So Crystal Nose and Humantic AI will look at the personalities of your colleagues, your prospects, your boss, and tell you how best to approach the person, how to resolve conflict. And for a very large deal, what I'll sometimes do is map the people that I'm working with to the people I'm selling to, to see who are the best personality types to pair together. And and after you've done that a couple of times, you no longer really need the app because it becomes a bit second nature. You can kind of peg it pretty quickly. But especially earlier in the career, Crystal Nose really helped me a lot to get a better read on people. Super cool. I actually haven't. I'm going to try it. Yeah, check uh, it out. It's really creepy. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying. What's the borderline between knowing your customer and being creepy? Right? There's, there's that. I think people don't get it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's super thin, right? And that is kind of one of the things, right? Is I don't like to do the the used car sales tactic to say, hey, 
you gotta buy before the end of the year for this reason or whatever. I'm, I'm usually just honest. I go, hey, look, this this is the conversation I had mm -hmm. with the CFO. CFO yeah. wants to make their numbers. Everybody gets their KPIs. Everybody gets a bonus. Everybody's happy. So they'll give an extra discount of X. You know, yes. if you buy before the end of the year, if it's in January, okay. you know, they're not yep. as excited anymore. The, yes. That goes away. So that level of openness and transparency creates quite a bit of trust, but you really mm. have to set aside your ego for that. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, and I like the style of doing it. So it's not so tongue in cheek. It's more transparent and open and honest. So yeah, I, I much prefer it. And then I remember early in my career when I used to make mistakes as a management consultant, I would try and hide the mistakes. <laughs> and you just end up with this massive level of anxiety as you're mm -hmm. trying to remember the layered implication of all of the mistakes. And so since then, I've much preferred to just be out front and be like, all right, guys, here's the mistake. Yes. Or here's, here's, here's what we're working with and here's why. And talking about mistakes, I think it links back into culture as well. What do you do as a sales leader to keep the culture at that really good level to, to keep performance so good? Oh, gosh. It... The number one thing for me, and so this is what I did with the ProxyClick Enterprise team, and we were in a tough place, right? We were selling visitor management software during the pandemic when there were no visitors to offices. It was really, really tough. So so we did so many different things. So one thing that we did was, uh, well, one thing we mandated was that we had our weekly call and we never, ever, ever skipped that weekly call. Mm -hmm. It was 30 minutes, but I don't like putting time into reps calendars and taking it out not mm -hmm. for, for people that are in the field. And I came to every single one of those calls you know, with my partner who's head of mid-market sales. And we had slides. We had uh, the king or the queen of the week. So we'd find okay. a crazy photo Something of them on fun. the internet okay. and give them a clip art crown. A lot of times reps needed success if they weren't hitting deals. So I'd actually have them document some of the processes or take on something that was an internal piece of frustration under what we called our be an author, not a critic program. And so anyone that complained, I was like, great, no problem, go fix it. And so it had the dual impact of A, a lot less complaining, but also a lot more ownership, right? If you're in a startup, you can fix it, take ownership, get on the front foot. Don't don't just send something out into the ether and be like, oh, nobody fixes. Get mm -hmm. get out there and go fix it yourself. And, and that gave the reps wins when they weren't necessarily getting commercial wins. And then the final thing we would do is we would do, we'd do some fun games like tech bingo and so on and so forth. So we, I think probably my best sales meeting that I ever ran, I'd been out to a dinner, I'd had a couple drinks with some friends, I'd forgotten that I had the sales meeting, it was like 11 p.m. So I got on and I was supposed to be doing a tech Q&A. So what we did is we pulled up like the full technical architecture of our product, really, really deep stuff that the sales guys weren't expected to know. And we just rapid fired questions at one another and everybody got them all wrong and we all made fun of each other, but we learned a whole lot. Okay. There was no cool. ego. So yeah. There was it. Yes. Oh, sorry. Just there's one other thing, yes. just in case you want to include this. Yes. And it, the, the idea of there not being one size fits all reps. So this was something that I worked really hard on with the team. There are different types of salespeople. There are the consultative salespeople, there are the athletes and they're the academic salespeople, so many different types of salespeople. And oftentimes in the media, there's just one type of salesperson that's portrayed. And that's not at all the case. So by one of the things I would do is even in my first presentation as, you know, in a sales leadership is I presented these six archetypes of salespeople and a quiz. And I said, go take this quiz, see which one you are, come back and tell me. 
And then I'm going to pair you with another member of the sales team who has the opposite type. So you can learn from one another's strengths and weaknesses. So I had these two sales reps who were fantastic and good friends, but very opposite personas. And so I, with the woman, I would ask her, okay, what would the man do? And she'd say, oh, he, he'd just say no. He'd be mean. He wouldn't take it on. So yes, okay, give that a go. <laughs> and for the man, I would say, what would, the, what would this, this woman on the team do? And he would say, oh, she, she would help them. She'd do the right thing. I said, okay, go ahead. Give that a go. And, and talking about our market where a lot of the market is new, it's fresh. You're doing a lot of cold outreach. What is your number one pet peeve when it comes to cold outreach emails? Oh, man. There's a few, but the ones that try to create a false friendship and then come in for the close that say, hey, I noticed that... You know, you went to Yale. As such, do you want to buy my lead generation services? No, no. Well, oh, come on. But I have had a couple that were where I've gone and given them feedback, and I said, you know, you're, you're early in your career. I can see. Like, let me give you a hand. And they've just completely ignored it, which is always a shame. There are also some where I've had great pitches, and I said, look, we're not ready for this right now, but great pitch because, you know, it's cold calling cold emailing is soul-sucking work it's really hard can you go you gotta look out for them yes. but i mean if as a salesperson yes. you're not gonna respond to that yeah. then okay. my gotta, goodness you gotta, right you can put some <laughs> positive karma out there you know you, you, you gotta eat your own dog food okay awesome you know you talked about your hobbies outside of work that you you know started cultivating one when you came to singapore how important is that outside of office job, knowing that sales is stressful, it's tough, it's difficult. So how important is, is having a life outside of work? Oh, it's absolutely essential. Yeah, you know, as an A-type people pleaser performer, I need a sense of validation that comes intrinsically from myself, which is, you know, maybe I woke up this morning and I did a great bike ride with some friends. Maybe I woke up and I went for a swim and had a wonderful coffee. Maybe I'm getting stronger in the gym, something like that. I need that win myself so that when you know a customer or my finance team comes to me and says, this is the deal, I have the confidence to say, take it or leave it. I can walk away from this because I don't need your validation. And that means that you can work from a position of predictability. And that's what you need to have as a salesperson for your customers is to to give them the confidence that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if they ask that question, they'll know that they'll get the same answer from you. And, and does that come because you're internally centered and balanced? Okay. Oh, God, no. There, there are no salespeople that are internally centered and balanced. <laughs> it's Not a roller coaster. <laughs> okay. But it, Absolutely. Oh, my Lord. If I wanted to be internally centered and balanced, I'd get a job in accounting. Okay. Not a chance. No, I, I need okay. the fight. I need the drama. I need the adrenaline. Absolutely. But I also need to know that me as a person, right. I'm an okay person. I am successful. And my success and my self-worth does not depend on, you know, getting this particular clause in the contract negotiated. That is true. I find a lot of salespeople just going all overboard to make things happen like it's life or death when it's not usually the case it doesn't have to be the case 
Yeah. And look, yes. I will absolutely go the extra mile for my customers, right? I have been doing, you know, hardware shipment logistics on the 1st of January from a beach in Nicaragua. I'll absolutely go that final mile, but you have to do it with a little bit of respect for yourself. Otherwise, you know, you burn out and, and I have burned out in the past. And as we, as we're approaching the end almost of the conversation, I wanted to know a little bit about what excites you outside of work now. Oh, all right. There's, there's so much. I'm really enjoying travel again and getting to see my family again. You know, COVID, 500 days in a 26 mile radius was definitely challenging. So I'm loving that. And, you know, reconnecting with old family and friends in person. You know, staying grounded through my family, through my friends, trying my hand at gardening, but mostly failing, let's be honest. <laughs> and then what I'm really looking forward to is I think everybody had this dream during COVID. And when I would get stressed during COVID, I would go and I would look up little farmhouses in the countryside of Europe. And then I still have this dream that I'm going to go and retire to a little farmhouse. But I, I know myself. I know the adrenaline. It's going to have to be next to a beach with big waves or lots of wind or a mountain with lots of snow. Because if I don't have that adrenaline, I'll go absolutely crazy. <laughs> but but that is kind and, of the dream. Uh, I know I asked this as you're going to go on. We've, we're closing out the year. It's been a great year. Uh, what are you most grateful for right now? Uh, without a question, it's my family. They're my rock from my parents, my sister, my husband, my daughter, and my in-laws. Absolutely most grateful for my family. And since this is the Happy Sales Podcast, the uh, question is, what does happiness look like to you? Happiness is easy. It's someone to love, something to plan for, and the warm glow that you get from making somebody else's day just a little bit better. Couldn't have said that any better. Thank you so much, Christina. It's been such a pleasure. We've covered so many great topics and I really enjoyed spending this time with you. And I hope you have an amazing holiday coming up. Thank you so much, Sam. It was great questions. And I really enjoyed this.